Hi everyone, uh, Albert here from Longball Football Podcast. Now, we're going to get on with the show very shortly, but this is just a quick message to say that uh, obviously a great deal of this week's podcast deals with the European Super League. Now, myself and Barney recorded the podcast on Monday evening when uh, the news was very fresh and it seemed very much like the Super League would be going ahead and was still a very raw topic for everybody. Now, since then, obviously a lot has changed and actually we're waking up on Wednesday morning uh, finding out that all six English clubs have since left the Super League and the future for the Super League is very much up in the air about whether it will even happen at all. So some of the information that we talk about may be a little bit out of date, but we wanted to leave the conversation in info as we had it because we think there's some great stuff in there just about the value of football to the everyday football fan. So uh, we hope you enjoy it. There'll be an updated section on the European Super League in next week's show once we have a clearer picture about how it's going to take shape. But anyway, that's enough for me, uh, and I'm with the show. Welcome to episode number 29 of the Long Ball Football Podcast, a weekly podcast by two English brothers about all things football in Portugal. You're listening to myself, Albert, and as always, I'm joined by my brother, Barney. How you been, Barney? You had a good week? Yeah, I'm fantastic, man. I'm not going to lie. Our parents obviously came up and saw me for the first time in eight months and saw their granddaughter for the first time, so it was amazing, man. I know we're going to talk about quite a serious, depressing thing in a little bit, but I just wanted to... <laughs> Talk well, basically, man. Like, because I haven't seen you in eight months either, you know. And True. doing this podcast has been so good. Like, you know, it's been so good for me. And like, what's been like a, a horrible year for everyone. Chatting to you every week, and, and when we record, and like, even when we're not just chatting football. And it's been so good. And we had hit a little milestone. We had like a thousand listeners to our podcast, which, which I don't think either of us ever expected. Absolutely. And like, you know, it's even all the people on Twitter who just you know like a post we do or you know respond to something we tweeted. It's just it's so good. It's such a good feeling. It's made me feel amazing. And so thanks for listening and thanks to you as well, man, because you do a lot more than me. You, you edit the podcast, you've got a full-time job, you do all the social media. Um, but I've loved it, and yeah. No, honestly, I couldn't agree with that more. It's been, yeah, it's been an incredible journey. We should say thank you to everybody who's listened. A thousand listeners is an, an incredible, incredible number. We're really grateful to everybody. We're just two guys talking nonsense about about something that we enjoy so we're glad you enjoyed listening just going back to uh what you were saying about our parents visiting your child have you had the difficult conversation yet with your wife about what football team your child is going to support obviously if anybody doesn't know barney lives in newcastle born in london we're both well i don't know if you consider yourself late or in support of barney have you had the conversation yet about what team Etta's is going to support i think the first thing um my, my wife couldn't care less um first thing to say. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. I see what she wants to support, man. Like, I hope it's not Newcastle because I mean it'd be good to go see some games. But I mean, there's a bit of a circus at that club. Yeah, I'll see what she likes. I'll, I'll try and lean her towards later on because I, I wouldn't say I support them, but I follow them. You know, the team I follow the most. So who knows? She could listen to this podcast and become a, a Samuelino fan. <laughs> <laughs> that would be brilliant. We'll get a little uh, Gil Vicente shirt sent in the post. <laughs> Well, look, of course, there is only one story on everybody's lips this week, Barney. And it's the European Super League. It's fair to say uh, it's disrupted our plans for this week's show quite a lot. We will still be rounding up the Liga Nosh and covering Porto's Champions League campaign in this show. But we can't not discuss what is one of the biggest stories in, let's be honest, in football history. 
12 of Europe's most famous clubs have signed up to a breakaway European Super League, a closed door format, which could include up to 20 teams. This is obviously a developing story, but as we record this on Monday, we understand Porto were the only Portuguese team approached about the possibility of joining. Porto President Pinto de Costa described them as informal conversations where Porto declined to have any involvement. Benfica and Sporting have both come out and said they are also opposed to the idea. I mean, where to start, Barney? What a fucking mess this all is. I mean, it's just insane. The outrage online is completely unprecedented. I've never seen anything like it. I'm still not really sure how to, to feel about it. I don't know if it's worth putting in a little bit of context about exactly what's going on. I think Andre Agnelli, the chairman of Juventus, is the orchestrator of this whole move. And I think along with, looks like a Wall Street Bank, JP Morgan, funding the competition. And I think that's become more evident in the fact, simply the fact that it sort of came out officially last night, didn't it? About 11.15 England time. Agnelli was the guy pushing this restructure that's sort of being going to a vote tonight, I believe, with this uh, new format of the Champions League where there's, you know, 36 teams and essentially that's four more games added to the Canada compared to what clubs are playing in the Champions League currently and teams getting places from more peripheral leagues. I mean... I sort of felt like this was a power move, you know, by announcing it to sort of try and get the, the big clubs to try and gain more clad in these negotiations about the restructure of the Champions League. But it's become more inevident. They don't they don't give a shit about the Champions League and it's just we're going for it now. And we're just going to do it our way. It's, it's, it's incredible. It's unbelievable news that I don't think any of us saw coming. There's been talk of this uh, European Super League for a little while. Whether it would or would not happen has been unclear. The unfortunate truth, though, Barney, is that football has been going in this direction for years. The Premier League was the first, and its main objective was to maximise profits, to become a commercially successful entity. And since the advent of the Premier League, the landscape of football has completely changed. The biggest shift has come from the financial success of selling the television rights of leagues. The fan in the stadium is no longer as important as the fan on the sofa, because those fans sitting at home watching Sky or BT or whatever it is, offer far more financially than any of the dedicated, loyal fans uh, who follow their teams home and away. And it might sound awful when you say it like that, but it is the truth. And it has been the truth for a long time. Again, I kind of want to be careful what I say. I don't want to patronise anyone. But I often feel quite sorry for for fans of big clubs. And I have done for years as a fan of a so-called smaller club because... In my opinion, many people have been burying their heads in the sand about how important they actually are as a fan to these elite clubs. And they desperately try and hold on to supporting these big teams. They're so loyal and they care so much about something which once mattered, but perhaps in 2021 is just purely a business aiming to exploit them for as much money as they possibly can. And, you know, it's obviously not a new thing. I remember reading a good article in the BBC a couple of years back, long before the pandemic, by the way, long before closed stadiums. And I dug it out while researching for this episode. It, it was an article that said that in the 2016-2017 Premier League season, if we take the Premier League as an example, in that season, 11 out of the 20 Premier League teams would have still made a profit had they not had a single fan in the stadium for the whole season, right? In that same season, the percentage of those clubs' revenue that came from TV rights was between 78 to 90%. That's nearly five years ago, right? This is only going one way. And lots of fans woke up this morning realising for the first time that maybe 
the multi-billion dollar company that they loyally put thousands of pounds a year into might not actually care about them and the same things that they do. Now, I'll just say this, right? I'm only one person. It's not for me to tell anyone how they spend their free time, how they spend their money, what clubs they should support, what things they should value in football. But ever since I've been old enough to make my own choices about how I want to follow football, I've chosen those options which are most meaningful to me and the community I live in. I followed one of those small clubs home and away, up and down the country, stood on the terraces in pouring rain, in freezing cold weather, while my team struggles to string a single pass together. And I can honestly say with all honesty, it is one of the most fulfilling experiences of my life. Knowing the connection that I have with that club, knowing the connection that that club has with me and what we offer to each other. And and look, we're two English boys doing a podcast about football from a totally different country to where we're from. And obviously we have our own interests in in Portugal as a country and, and us following the league is not completely random. But my message to people out there, anyone today feeling alienated by the fact that the club that they support is turning its back on honest football, that honest working people have created is this. No matter what, there is still so much honest football, football with integrity, passion, class out there. And whether it's following your local team at the grounds on a Saturday and then sitting down to the telly on a Sunday night to watch a league from hundreds of miles away from you, learning about new cultures, understanding that around the world there are millions of fans like you who just love the game. I promise there is so much out there still to enjoy and all you have to do is live for it. Yeah, really well said, man. And I think sort of continuing on from that sort of theme, I saw Tom Kunnott on Twitter say, I thought this was a really good take, let these clubs go, let them do what they want. And this will be the Champions League will be filled with these historical clubs from, you know, the peripheral leagues, like the big three from Portugal, you know, and you can include Ajax, FC, Copenhagen, Dynamo Kiev and stuff like that in, into that conversation. And I think the thing with all these clubs oh, is that the way they're run is how I think we both feel a football club is should be run. And by that, I mean, you know, they promote players from within the club. They all have players from the youth academies playing important roles in the team. Most of the players are from the country the club is from, but there's still foreign players there too, which I'm all for, by the way. But the core of the team is of that nation. And so when you get, say, Ajax versus Porto, you're getting sort of two footballing identities from two different countries coming up against each other. And it's might be a bit nostalgic, perhaps, but when you think of that Ajax team that got to the semi-final against Tottenham and you think of the Porto team this season who did so well in the Champions League, you know, I'd include players like Sanusi and Morega into these players who, despite not being from Portugal, forged their careers in the country and so if that was what the Champions League is going to be in the future I'm all for that because they're more of an honest team they're more like people can relate to it a lot more than these super clubs who just pick and choose who they want and you don't have to live there but you can get behind a, a club's philosophy can't you and and mm. and that's what I I think that's the positive we can hopefully try and take out of this move if it does happen I mean you, you use uh, Porto versus Ajax as an example there listen Porto and Ajax have got more European success combined than most of the teams in, in the so-called Super League. You know, but look, we, we should talk about how this is going to affect Portuguese clubs uh, specifically. And, and let's just say, by the way, we're under no illusions. The big three in Portugal are very, very big businesses, right? A lot of money goes into those clubs. A lot of money comes in and out. You know, they're run by very, very wealthy people. We're not under any illusions. But, you know, one of the reasons that we love Portuguese football is that even those clubs still have a real connection with their fans, you know. It's such a huge asset to those clubs and they still benefit their community so much, whether it's with 
you know, coaching, training, young players that come through the academy, the belief that it gives to people from that area and the pride that it gives to people from that area, you know, that's, you know, still remains. And just to echo what Gary Neville was saying on Sky Sports the other day that I thought he put pretty well, at the end of the day, if you if you enjoy watching the Champions League, if you enjoy watching the Premier League, if you enjoy watching the League and Lush even, you can't be against money in football, right? We all understand that there's big money in football, but even the Premier League didn't go to the extent that this Super League is going to, where they are closing their doors and suggesting a type of football without any integrity, without any honesty, and just without any jeopardy, just meaningless football, that is closer to entertainment content than it is to a sport. You know, that's why this Super League is just such a step too far from some of the existing leagues that that we currently see. Anyway, like I said, we should talk about how this is going to affect Portuguese teams. We've already seen Porto were approached to be in it and declined. We've seen Benfica and Sporting come out and say uh, they won't be interested in a European Super League. Let's start with those three teams, Barney. How do you think, if this Super League goes ahead without them, this will affect them. First, I mean, I don't know about you. I, were you surprised that Porto declined to join the Super League? It's an interesting question. And and I have to be totally honest with with the listeners here and any Porto fans listen, listening. I hold my hands up because we chatted about this during the week. And I will be honest. I said I thought Porto would take the chance if they were offered it. And they've proved me wrong. And I'm really happy yeah. to be proved wrong about that. It's, it's made me really happy because I thought the mindset of a Portuguese team would have been to follow the money, really, and to see this as an opportunity to make more money than they do domestically and in the Champions League. But I have to say, not even just from a moral standpoint, from a footballing standpoint, I think it is the right choice because Porto need to be realistic about why they were being invited. They were not being invited to be on the same playing field as Real Madrid, as Barcelona, as Man United and Man City. Those teams need somebody to beat every week, right? If they're going to play each other. They need someone to be at the bottom of the table. And realistically, I think that's what would have been offered to a Portuguese club. It makes me sad to say it, but it's the truth. So I think even in a footballing sense, Porto have made the right choice. But yeah, I was a tad surprised. I have to be honest about that. Yeah, and I think especially what, you know, with Porto's, it's almost continent, but their ongoing issue with UEFA and financial fair play. And, you know, they'd had a fantastic season in Champions League this season, beating good teams. And I I personally, yeah, I agree. I I wouldn't have been surprised if said, right, fuck you, UEFA, we're going to get some real money now and yeah. um because i think it's another thing to point out and I, I know it's not this the issue of the day but even in the current format of the champions league you know clubs like um i think i saw a statistic last season when ajax and barcelona both went out of the semi-final stages barcelona was still getting more money than ajax and i think that mm. could be the same case with this season with um, porto but anyway i was getting really scared before we found out porto had declined to join because you know we've just had this tv rights deal in liga nosh where the money was going to be even out better and it was going to create a fairer playing field in the league which we're all for and then suddenly the idea of one club in this league being part of the Super League getting what was it billions of pounds being the numbers being thrown mm. around it would just kill the league at completely mm. dead like the, the, the amount of buying power this the one Portuguese team would have is just yeah I mean I'm so I'm, I'm quite proud of Porto for declining I'm proud of um, Benfica and Sporting as well for because it, it, at the end of the day, it's, it's so tempting. You know, like I mentioned, Porto have had their financial issues. Benfica have had their financial issues. Sporting have had their financial issues in the recent past. It would have been so, so tempting to have just taken this easy money. But I'm, I'm, I'm relieved they haven't. I'm relieved they haven't. And Yeah, you're right. And, and the thought of one Portuguese club being so much richer than all the others is an interesting one. And I've thought this for a long time. But you look at a league like the Scottish League where Celtic spent so many years as the only team with any chance of winning that league 
And what did that do for the Scottish Premiership's international appeal? Absolutely nothing. It was it was horrific. It doesn't benefit anyone. And say Porto had taken the money and turned into a huge dominant club in Portugal, it, it benefits them financially. But in terms of the fan base, I don't think it benefits them because nobody wants one team winning the league every year, even the team that wins it, because it needs to mean something. It needs to matter. And if you're winning the league every year with no competition, that's not something that anybody wants. And it, and it starts to lose value. So I think it's better for everyone that we don't end up in that in that situation. It does lead us on to, Barney, the whole competition aspect of the Super League about would these games become meaningless? Would they have any value to a potential audience? A lot of people saying they wouldn't, but I do have to disagree with that. I, I think, sadly, and the reason why this Super League is such a tempting idea to these investors is because there is a huge global audience for these type of games. And that's really what we're fighting against, a global uh, audience who are not so interested in the history, they're not so interested in the lower teams in the league versus a domestic market who have more interest in the history uh, that comes with following a team in a domestic league that's been around for decades. For me personally, the Champions League will always be the Champions League. You know, I, Was it Daniel Pudence who recently put a tweet out this afternoon just saying, was it the, the ball, the song? The dream. The dream, yeah, yeah, yeah. And like, and that, that is so true, man. And like I mentioned, those, those old historic clubs who have had success in this league, it's all part of that magic. If I think of this season, for example, and the last few Champions Leagues, Juventus, Barcelona, Real Madrid, Arsenal, Tottenham, you know, they've all played absolute stinkers at some point within this competition. <laughs> they've, been, they've been boring to watch. Like the Porto win against Juventus was a fantastic game, all credit to Porto. You know, and... Atlanta's like there's just been so many of these other teams who have played such exciting football and whatever happens it's the Champions League for me and a Portuguese club in that competition or two you know is is it's just still perfect and some people will argue that the Champions League at some point was a new construct and and why can't people then follow this new construct of the European Super League but there is a huge difference the Champions League was just a new iteration of the European Cup, a competition with real merit and integrity that had existed for decades before that. And that's the key thing here. The Champions League is a cup format with integrity where a team qualifies on merit and has the opportunity to earn their way up that competition through hard work and good performances. And that's what the European Super League doesn't have, any integrity and any validity. And I think we've made our position quite clear. I don't think we're sitting yeah. on the fence. Really, <laughs> Obviously, we're still speculating about a lot of this stuff. No one really knows where it's going to go. It does seem to be moving ahead with a worrying amount of speed. So we'll follow it as much as we can. And I'm sure everyone will be following with great interest in what happens. There's talk of players being banned from playing for the national teams. There's talk of teams being kicked out of their domestic league. So this is just the beginning. You know, We're going to be following yeah. this story for a long, long time. Right, well, moving away from the doom and gloom of modern sport and onto what we love, a bit of proper football from the Portuguese league. We're going to start with Sporting's game against Ferenc at the top of the table. It was obviously well documented, their two draws in a row, dropping four points in two games. What they needed was a convincing comeback win against Ferenc. They got the win, 1-0 on the night, but I think it's fair to say, Barney, it wasn't quite the convincing performance that they might have wanted. Yeah, I mean... 
a cliche, but for me, this really was a game of two halves, you know. I mean, to be fair to Sporting, I think their first half, they were playing some of the best football I've seen them, seen from them. I think their link-up play was amazing. Um, I thought Jamari had a fantastic game. I, um, Paulinho as well, I thought was creating loads of chances and uh, for his teammates. But there was a couple where I felt like it was a better place to have a go himself, but then he tried to sort of do that extra pass and... And then Pote as well, I, I I couldn't find the statistic, but I think it was something like he's now contributed to 49% of Sporting's goals this season. And I just, you, you know, when you, when you saw him running onto that ball for his goal, you, you just knew it was going in. And I don't know how you felt, but I, I was actually generally quite impressed in the first half. No, it, it's, a, it's a very fair point. And, and lots of people, like myself, were suggesting it was a shaky win for Sporting. It was far from convincing. And, you know, a 1-0 win against Ferenc on paper might not look ideal, especially given Ferenc's position on the table. But I do actually think, Sporting played pretty well like yourself and it was more so to Forenz's credit that the game was only 1-0. I have to say, the Forenz goalkeeper, Barney Beto, he was fantastic. He was brought in in January after Rafa Defendi was ruled out for the season. I liked Rafa Defendi a lot. I was really sad to see him injured. 38 years old, 16 Portugal caps. He signed from Le Chois in the Campeonato de Portugal, the third tier. He had a fantastic game, man. I'm not expecting much from him, but I thought he was brilliant. He he, he put himself about. He's really commanding. He pulled off some great saves. Him and Adan, to be fair, uh, yeah. had good games. I thought I thought the rest of the team did pretty well, considering it was against Sporting. They did have their chances. They had that one golden chance. It was Pedro Henrique, the striker in the second half. Ryan Gould, as you would expect, the provider for that chance. He was fantastic. He was a really good form. Uh, he didn't get on the score sheet. He didn't manage to get an assist, but he, he was in excellent form. And like I said, to me, a big part of this result was to Forenza's credit, not just uh, Sporting's detriment. The one key thing, Barney, I think you'll agree with me on this, Sporting are lacking firepower. And in this game, I thought Paulinho was, was misfiring. We defended him last week because he was one of the better performers in their two draws. But for me, he had two chances that he should have taken in this game. And weirdly enough, two chances that that he chose not to take, that he decided to pass on. That was what I found quite interesting. The first one, a flick-on header, when yeah. Pedro Gonzalez puts a really lovely ball in the box, the ball's just stood up perfectly for him to nod down. Fair enough, you might not be able to get loads of power on it, but a good place header into one of the corners. Got a great chance of scoring. The second one, when he was through on goal and he decided to you know, do a little jab with his left foot to try and find a teammate. Definitely two poor decisions. He had a good chance in the second half where there was a great save from Beto. So maybe that was an element of bad luck, but he was brought in for a lot of money in January, Barney. You can't get away from that. He was brought in to be that missing piece of the puzzle. Let's not forget that the first half of the season, Sporting were toying between Spora and Thiago Thomas up front. And it was a real problem area. They put their money where their mouth is and, and brought him into the club to fire them over the line to this coveted title that they crave so much. And, and it's not quite working. I will just say for the record, I do like Polinio. And I do think he's got great talent, but I don't think we can get away from the fact that he's not firing at the moment. I wonder if it's a confidence thing. Those two chances you mentioned where he chose to pass. It could be a lack of confidence. While he was at Prague as well, the first half of the season, you know, he he wasn't getting anywhere near the numbers he was recording last season. It can't be a managerial thing about him passing at those in those points. It can't be, you know, Amos not telling him you need to play that extra pass. It, it, you know, mm. it, it's on him. But like I said, I did like some of his link-up play. It was, you know, it did work quite well. And that was exciting when those moments were happening. But... You know, as as their number nine, as their main man up top, he's got to be putting a few goals away. I've got two points I wanted to make, Albert. Um, just to go back to the first thing that you said about basically highlighting Ryan Gold. I know we go on about him a lot in this podcast, but the thing I thought about in this game, you know, it's built about Ryan Gold's homecoming, you know, having started his Portuguese career at Sporting. Do, do you think Sporting will be looking at him as 
as he is available on a free. Do you think he would go back? Because it sort of ties in with this rumour that came out this week about Sevilla being interested in João Mario and whether uh, Sporting can afford, you know, because he's on huge wages with Inter Milan, is whether they can afford that deal. And if they weren't able to get him here permanently, is Gould the cheap alternative and is that a smart option? Well, to answer the first point, I think Ryan would go back. Uh, I don't think he's too proud to do that. I think he would see it as a good opportunity to play at a great club and I think he would take it. We know he loves the country and, he, and he's uh, happy to stay there. Um, I think he would be a good option for Sporting, but not as a replacement for uh, João Mario. I think he'd be a potential replacement for Pedro Gonçalves if they can't keep him. I think he'd be more suited to playing on the right wing, being that kind of winger, half-winger, half-playmaker that plays off the right-hand side. I think Sporting have already got a, a good replacement for João Mario in... Is it Mateus Nunes? You have to forgive me the name. Yeah. I might have got the name wrong, but Mateus Nunes, the, the young central midfielder, versatile player and a very good player as well. I think he's struggling with, uh, still struggling with coronavirus symptoms actually. But So I think that, that there's an option there. I, I think he would be a good option for sporting, definitely. I think he'd be a good option for any team in this league at any level. Uh, and it could actually be a, a good fit to go back to the club where he famously didn't make it, you know? Yeah. No, I wouldn't mind seeing it. I mean, and the other thing I wanted to come back to is, I feel like there's a fair few sporting fans with this sort of, not negative attitude, but, you know, feeling a bit down. You mentioned they they dropped points in the last two games. This wasn't a convincing win. And someone's put on Twitter, I'm sorry, I can't remember their name because it was a great tweet, um, that sporting have now gone 20 games scoring two goals or less, which was an interesting thing to bring up because I, I basically, I, I looked at, the Arsenal's invincible season. In that season, they recorded 13 wins out of 26 wins with a win by a, a difference of one goal. So basically exactly half of their wins was by a margin of one goal. And Sporting so far have had 10 wins by a difference of one goal out of their 21, which is almost exactly half as well. Arsenal recorded 12 draws that season and Sporting so far have six draws with the seven games remaining. So the point I'm trying to make, you know, we think of that Arsenal Invincibles team as one of the best teams in Premier League history. And it was a roaring success that whole season. It was a fantastic achievement. And with Sporting recording similar numbers, I think it just highlights how difficult it is to go through a season unbeaten and how a fair few of your wins will be scrappy and will be by small margins because to maintain that level is incredibly hard, even though they haven't got European commitments. I think it is worth remembering like they are doing something incredible. And if they can get it over the line, you know, it is a fantastic achievement. No, I totally agree. And it's an interesting debate about the value of going through a season unbeaten because what would you rather do? Have an unbeaten season where you win the league by three points or lose two games but still win the league by 10, 15 points? You know, we see that recently with, with Manchester City where they've had some incredible seasons where they've won the league. They were going to do it this year and I think they did it a couple of years ago where they're going to win the league by a large margin. They didn't necessarily do it unbeaten, but is that a better achievement yeah. than you know, drawing a bunch of games that you could have won. So, yeah, it's an interesting question. Whatever happens, Sporting are in for a fight in these next few games. They're going to have to fight and grind out the results. It's not going to be pretty. It's not going to be fun. And like you said a couple of weeks ago, I feel sorry for the Sporting fans because (laughs) this is not going to be fun at all. You know, until they've got their hands on their trophy, they cannot truly let themselves believe. So it's going to be difficult. Just quickly, Barley, I did dig out that tweet that you mentioned from Patrick Ribeiro. He's a, he's a great writer who writes for Portugal.net. That's P underscore S Ribeiro on Twitter if anyone wants to follow him. Fantastic set that. But more importantly, 27 last games without a loss, you know, which yeah. is the most important stat. Before we move on, I've got to go back to um, just the goalkeeper Beto for friends. Um, yeah. I, I'm sure, yeah, I know what you're going to say. I know what you're going to uh, say. Yeah, I cannot get behind the guy if he's wearing number three in that. It cannot happen. <laughs> Here's a good question for you, Barney. What's worse, 
Beto wearing number three in goal or Rui Patricio wearing number 11 for Wolves? Which makes you feel more sick? Ah, It's a tough one, man, because (laughs) I think it's got to be better because you can understand the 11 because it's two ones, but that's still disgusting because that should be a left (laughs) midfielder. But also, these these shirt numbers obsession I have, it it, it doesn't translate to Portuguese football because obviously they have number five at left back and that still confuses me a little bit, but it makes sense because of one, two, three, four, five. Anyway, uh, (laughs) it's a real bugbear of mine, but the number three, I I just do not get at all. I'd love to know his reason. Well, if he keeps on playing as well as he did in goal, I'll let him wear whatever number on his back that he wants. Well, let's move on, Bonnie. Let's talk about Benfica. Uh, Very surprising result for them this week. They lost 2-1 at home to Gil Vicente. Especially surprising as we were praising him so much last week after a string of really good performances. Let me know your thoughts, Barney. I think you caught a little bit more of this game than I did. Yeah, I mean, it was just the Benfica of old, man. And (laughs) there will be some criticism for me that I've said a dozen times in this podcast, but... What we have to do is give a lot of credit to Gil Vicente. This is the first time they've ever been beating Penfica, mm. um, as far as I can see. And Ricardo Suarez, the manager, who's, who, side note for me, is the best dressed manager in the league. He's got a lovely bomber jacket. I don't know if you agree with that, but uh, he got his tactics spot on, man, in this game. They set up well defensively. I think Benfica had 19 shots in this game. Ten of those were blocked by a Gil Vicente player. Only one mm. hit in the target. But I think the best thing was that he identified Benfica's three centre-backs and used Lorenzi and Lotti on the, the French wing on the left on the right, sorry, he used their pace to stretch them and get him behind. You know, you saw that in the first goal, I think Vertonghen got turned way too easy and then Otamendi and Grimaldo failed to make a shot. And that was from Lute, who has many been used as a sub this season, but he, he did so well for that goal. And the work rate of Ricardo Suarez's players, you know, that was so impressive as well. They were always sprinting back when they did get caught. But when in the fence, they would have eight or nine behind the ball, but then still throw player forward when they were um, in possession. It was, it was just a perfect game to play against Benfica. You know, they gave them no space to run behind. They filled out the penalty area bodies um, and they attacked their slow free centre-backs with pace. And I just thought it was, it was yeah, really impressive. Uh, yeah, you're totally right. And and we do say it a lot in this podcast. People might be, be sick of hearing it, but we do like to give credit to the smaller teams where it's due, you know. And you're right, this result was credit to Gilles as much as it was to the weaknesses of Benfica. You said a lot already about how well they played Barney. I'm not going to add anything more. But just to say, the quality of both finishes was excellent. Really, really high quality finishes uh, for both goals. And interesting when you compare that to Benfica, who did have one or two decent chances that they failed to put away. Especially surprising, again, given the form of, of someone like Soferovic, who's been absolutely unplayable recently. I think he had a couple of chances that I expected him to take. So, yeah, Benfica really not at their best that we've expected from them in the last few games. Yeah, and I think maybe I did get carried away last week with the heap and the praise on Benfica. But... I think we've got to remember that a fair few of these games are against 10 men. And so it's easy to defend against. It's easy to break teams down. I mean, Passos played into their hands last week by playing such a high Mm. line. They got him behind so many times. And it's the 15th time this season, now that they've had a higher XG than the goals they scored in the game. And that's been an issue all season. Now, the only other teams, if you look at the XG for the whole season, I'm sorry, I know we always talk about XG of Benfica, but it's a really (laughs) interesting one. I'm going to list off a few teams. Morians, BSAD, Rio Ave, Maritimo and Friends and Benfica. These are all teams who have a higher XG than goals scored so far in the season. And with all those teams, you could say they're having a bad season, basically, couldn't you? It's not the kind of company Benfica want to be in at all. I might say not have been flip-flopping what I've said in previous weeks, because I have praised Benfica's defence. You know, they've had a lot of clean sheets. But I think they need to consider that back three and the pace they have. Because for me, I'm just going to say it, Vertonghen, because... In the summer, 
as an opportunity to get someone in because I just feel like he's not getting any younger. Otamendi's not getting any younger. Verissimo, I think, has been shown that he hasn't quite got the pace as well, particularly against Aubameyang in the Europa League. And like I said, Ricardo Suarez got a spot on. He identified it. And I think Gilbert Sante really highlighted that as an issue in this game. Yeah, especially interesting given some of these centre-backs that Benfica have let go this season, most notably Ferro, you know, a much younger and more uh, mobile player than, than what they've got at the moment. Still seven games left of the season, Barney. Still a chance for Benfica to turn this around and really move up the table. Uh, any positives from the game for you? I, just, I feel like I'm contradicting myself again, but one thing that I have liked is with these three centre-backs is is <laughs> the freedom it's given Tyrab because I realized, like last you were right to highlight him last week. I thought he played brilliant. I think he was their best player this week. And I think because he's given that freedom and you know, less responsibility defensively, he's becoming more and more effective. I mean, there were quite a few moments I felt that he was looking forward to make that pass to, to cut through the lines, but the, the players weren't making the run. So he's almost on a, a different wavelength. But, you know, he's still some fantastic touches in this game, um, a really creative player. And yeah, like I said, I, it, this system does suit that him and he's done well to nail down that starting spot. Well, I said it quite a few weeks ago on this show about Adele Tarat. You know, when he was most successful with Benfica, it was under Bruno Lage. And Bruno Lage, more or less, was building the team around him. So I think if you're going to get the best out of Adele, you really have to play to his strengths and not his weaknesses, as you said very well. Taking away responsibility from him, I think, is important and just letting him play a free game, which people might not like because, you know, football is a team sport and it's about contributing to your team. But if you if you give him the right environment to play in, it could very well pay off because he's a player still with a lot of talent, uh, as we've seen many times this season. Well, look, there was a slip up in result for Benfica. There's no doubt about that. And it's possible that it could have opened the door for Braga to gain some ground, but they didn't take it. They only managed a nil-nil draw with Rio Ave. And it was an interesting game, this one, Barney. Braga, another team that we've raved about recently and fallen foul of, you know, a little curse that we've put on teams a couple of times recently. They couldn't get past Rio Ave and capitalise on Benfica's loss. But there were definitely chances in the game. It ended nil-nil. But for me, both teams could have and should have scored. I just feel like, you know, say they play the best football in the league a couple of weeks ago and then they play out two fairly boring draws. I mean, um, (laughs) (laughs) but look, it's been disappointing recently. It's nine points dropped in the last five games. There's only one win. I've been trying to work out what it is. I mean, it might seem like excuses, but they have had a lot of big injuries to that team. I mean, I mean, Andre Crastro's he was really good in the field at the beginning of the season. Him and Ali Mastrati, he's only just coming back. David Carmo as well, we, we're, we're a bit unsure about him, but, you know, he's their main centre-back. They also let Bruno Viana move on in January. You know, that hasn't helped their defence situation. And Yuri Medeiros, who, you know, was starting to play really well and then he suffered that bad injury. Like, they have been unlucky in that sense. And we haven't been able to see Carlos Cava's strongest team, I feel, for a very long time. Mm. But like I said, I don't want to make excuses for him, but it has been quite disappointing recently. And I really feel that they had... You know, we were talking about them even pushing for the league like quite a few months ago, weren't we? It's just it's just dropped off completely. Yeah, I mean, it shows that there's still a long way to go for Braga. As you say, the squad depth's not quite there. They missed some key players. They brought in one or two key players in January. Lucas Piazon started really well in January when he came in. Gone a little bit off the ball now. Same with Abel Ruiz, who started to pick up some form in January. And that's also slightly, slightly dripped off. It's now only four points from their last five games, Barney. So, you know, this is a dip in form at exactly the wrong time. You know, seven games left to go. It's come exactly when they wouldn't want it. And keeping up with Benfica for that third place spot is going to be a real tough ask for the rest of the season. Yeah, they've got a few tough games as well, haven't they? So 
it, it's going to be interesting to see. And then Rio Ave, I mean, I feel like I said the same last week. They've just been a real, a real disappointment, and they are one of those teams I just mentioned of having a a higher xG than the goals they've actually scored, which is. You know, um, they're, they're not finishing. Gelson Dalla got himself sent off in this game, didn't he? And he's perhaps been their main striker. So it's it's not looking great for them either. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry, man. I feel like we have, I've, you know, always talk in a really negative way. But it's, it's, if, it's it makes, if it makes any Real Ave fans feel better, I think they've got a lovely kit. They've got the best kit in the league. Yeah, that's for sure. Very small positive for them. Well, look, one <laughs> team that didn't suffer from our little curse was Victoria Guimaraes, of course, who ended their poor run of form with a hard-fought 1-0 win over Santa Clara, a side who'd been quietly hunting them down in the table in recent weeks. wasn't an amazing performance by Victoria, but a big improvement. Nonetheless, you could pick out a couple of players who did well in this game. But for me, I want to highlight the two wingers who were pretty impressive. Edwards on the right, Rashina on the left. Both had really strong performances. I thought Edwards was particularly creative from the right-hand side. And it's really nice to see him getting back to his best form. I think they played their strongest 11 hour, I think, with Rashini on the left, Edwards on the right. And like I mentioned last week, like even despite them losing, the fact that Bino went to this five at the back um, with Sacco playing a right wing back, I love how it gives Edwards that opportunity to come inside a lot more. Um, uh, I think that's brilliant. Yeah, exactly like Barley. And I think the only thing missing from Edwards' game was a goal to top it all off. And he had two big chances, you know. The first one, it was like he kind of turned into a bit of an assist when he cut inside, his shot rebounded off the post and Machini put it away in the second one, in the second half when he's running through and goal. He does the hard work, you know, he rounds the keeper, but he can't put the ball in away into what, you know, truthfully was uh, an open goal. I wonder your opinion on this, Barney, if his finishing is something that he needs to work on because he's obviously a supremely talented player, but it's not the first time for me that he's not been clinical enough. And I say that as a massive fan of his and, and someone who wants to see him play at the highest level, but... You know, you see the difference between him and 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 some of those players playing at the highest level. It's, you know, Raheem Sterling went through a similar thing where people criticised his finishing and he worked on that, added those goals to his game and and, and took his game to a whole new level. I think the thing with Edwards is it's going to be hard to judge him right now because he's been out for so long. He hasn't, he's not Matt Sharp, you know, because he was dropped because he's been um, left out of the team for far, far too long. Um, I think his goal return last season, I think, is what you should be look, what we should be looking at, and I think that w- that will hopefully come back. But yeah, I, I mean, yeah, he did he did deserve a goal, and I think it's been lovely to see like you know as soon as he's put back in the team, he's he's their best player. I think he was man of the match in this game. Another player who we've highlighted for this Victoria team, who's who's been a stand up player this season, is Andre Major, and I think what's interesting that he loses out in this game to Pepelu and. For me, as much as we've hyped him, I do think this is the right choice because I feel like Pepe is that more solid player, defensively a bit more, you know, he's a bit more physical, um, defensively a bit more sound. And so I think that was the right decision for Bina to do that. I, I'm sure this is not the last we've seen of Andre Mayer, but I think in terms of the strongest 11, that was the right decision to move him in. Yeah, I, th- I think that's an interesting one. Andre Almeida is one of the young players in the league who's played the most minutes, one of the under 21 players who's played the most minutes for their club this season so it's obviously going to take its toll on the young man he's performed very well by the way and I think he's a great player but like you I don't think it's the end of the world if he's taken out of the team for a bit and, and gets a bit of a rest 
No, absolutely. And um, I think another thing I, I liked from this game from Victoria was how solid their defence was. I think all three of those centre-backs were just sort of, they were just clearing everything when they came in. I think Hawke Fernandes, who I've been critical of, had a great game. I think he's, he made 11 clearances in this one. And Moomin, who made that horrendous error, um, which I think was just almost criminal. But apart from that, he, he looked good as well. He was he was contributing in terms of clearances. I don't know what you think about that. Well, I think you've been very generous to him. Uh, I thought the mistake that he made was absolutely insane. For anybody who's not seen it, you can go back and watch the highlights, but essentially he attempts to clear the ball with a header, heads the ball straight up into the air, sets himself underneath the ball to then head that ball away from the goal with no challenge, decides to just stand still and not head the ball. The ball ricochets off his back, through on goal, uh, and a Santa Clara player is there to finish. He was very lucky that the goal was ruled out for offside by what was it, Barney? Six centimeters. He's really off the hook with that one, I think. It, look, it must. It looked like it was just really bad communication. I, I had no idea what was going on there, but I think from Santa Clara's point of view, I felt they just made um, a load of bad decisions in the final third. There was a lot of shots from distance as well, and I, personally, I, I love it when someone shoots from thirty yards plus because there's like no chance it's going to go in. It's usually sky high, but. But I love the fact that they've got that belief, you know. What I mean? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and there was a few instances with Santa Clara that shot when that, you know, they, sh- they should have been more patient, look for the extra pass. I mean, Barney, that's me every single week down the far <laughs> side. <laughs> <laughs> I can't, I can't blame that, you know. I love yeah. the belief, but another player oh, you mentioned last week, I think, I, I think he stood out again in this one. It was Lincoln, the number ten. Mm. I think I really like him. You know, he came from Brazil beginning of last season he's only 22 and I can genuinely see him moving to a bigger club so he's eighth in this league in terms of uh, how many times he gets fouled a game I find this is a really interesting statistic because if you look across all the leagues you know in Europe Jack Grealish and Wilfred Zaha are the most fouled in the Premier League Nabil Fakir Luis Ocampos Messi Ikemunen are all the top eight in most fouled in La Liga uh, Andre Bellotti, uh, Josef Ilicic from Atlanta, Frank Ribery are all in the top eight for Serie A. And all these players are vital players for their club. And I think, I've, well, it's obvious, Lincoln is that player for Santa Clara because I know we're all about um, outlandish player comparisons and I'm not, I'm not trying to compare Lincoln to Messi, by the way. But do you see what I mean in terms of, I, I think it, like it's a weird statistic, but I think it's it's a useful thing to have, a player who's going to win you fouls, win you set pieces up high up the pitch. Well, I think what it also indicates is how much of the ball he has in the game compared to the rest of his teammates and also how good his close control is if the only way players can get the ball off him uh, is to foul him. So, yeah, I totally agree. He's a very useful player for Santa Clara. And Santa Clara are a team that they'll be disappointed with this result because they've got high hopes, they've got high aspirations and they've set themselves a high standard so far this season. So this game went under the radar a little bit, but it, it was a pretty big game, you know. It was a real opportunity for Santa Clara to move up the table and, and, and move into sixth place. I mean... As it went, Victoria got the win. Vital for them. The belief that they need to take from this game is huge. They need to start building their confidence uh, if they're going to uh, resurrect any European hopes that they might have. I mean, Passos de Ferreira, uh, we're not really going to touch on them in this podcast, but they lost 2-0. That's a, a number of losses they've had recently, so it seems like uh, there's a drop-off in form for them. The points gap between Passos uh, and Victoria is quite large. It's currently six points with seven games to go. So not impossible, but it might be insurmountable for Victoria. Yeah, and I think the biggest takeaway from this game is how much of a polished performance this was from Victoria, you know, across the whole pitch and attack and defence. I don't think we've seen this sort of performance from them in a long time. And I think that's the most encouraging thing to take away from it. Definitely, definitely encouraging signs for 
uh, Pretoria. Well, Barney, we're going to move on to the last game that we're going to discuss uh, on this week's show, Porto Valens versus Family Cow. And this was a real another game that really went under the radar in terms of how interesting it was and how important it was. Fascinating game to watch, possibly my favourite from the week. And definitely, in my opinion, one of the most interesting scorelines. It ended 1-0 to Porto Valens. These are two teams that we've heaped praise on in recent weeks uh, and a very, very tight fought game. I thought it was evenly matched. Both teams had chances. Both teams are relatively solid as well. In the end, a bit of a scrappy goal that separated the two teams from Beto, but honestly, a really good match. You know, this is credit to both of these teams because, you know, they've really put themselves up there in terms of what we can expect for them in the game. And uh, it was really tight. It was more tight than I thought it was going to be. You mentioned Beto's goal. He does, I mean, it was a bit scrappy, but, you know, he does what every informed striker does and he, he creates the chance almost, doesn't he? But just putting that sheer effort and that sheer determination. And yeah, I mean, I, I spoke a lot about Portsmouth last week. We know how I feel about them. They're up to ninth now. It's three wins in a row for the first time since they've got back into Liga Nosh back in 2017. So it's an incredible thing for them. I don't think Family Cal should be too disappointed from this. I think they're just so evenly matched, both informed teams, and they were just unlucky there. I think when you look back at the game, I do think Family Cal edged it in terms of the amount of turns they created and sort of looking the more dangerous of the two. But like you said, when I saw the the games this weekend, the Toro Grimmish-Nantagara game and this game were the two that stood out for me. And um, that's what I love about what we've learned from the league this season. You know, we've been able to identify these little hidden gems of matches on the weekend. Yeah, proper, proper football match that one was. And Family Carroll now got a, a decent cushion against the relegation zone at the moment. It's not huge. It's something like four points, but you know, there's enough there for them to work with. And, and the performances they're putting in, uh, I don't think either of us are worried about them for the rest of the season. Before we move on, Barney, everybody listening to the show knows we love to shed a bit of light on an underrated player. I'm going to do that for Porto Menendez. We've spoken about Beto before. We've spoken about Bowen before. I've got to praise Anzai today. Mm. He played so well in this game. He usually operates as a kind of attacking fullback, maybe a wingback. He played much further up the pitch, I thought, this weekend. And he was in and around the box trying to get involved in chances. You know, he was the one who... Uh, really created the opportunity for Beto's goal. And I think he's just been a real positive influence on that team, a good player for them all season and showed not only good ability, but also versatility. Yeah, because I think he's even played at the left back at some points this season. Um, you know, he's played all over the pitch. And he, well, I like, he's quite young as well, isn't he? He's like 22, 23. Mm. Um, so he's quite an exciting uh, talent. And um, yeah, I think you're right to point out because he's, it's, I feel like the wing back spot can sometimes get overlooked kind of in terms of what they contribute to the team but his his attacking ability was was really useful in this game Right, well, before we finish this week's episode, we wanted to dedicate some time at the end of the show to reflect on Porto's fantastic Champions League campaign. This is the first time we've been able to properly cover their quarterfinal doubleheader against Chelsea. 2-1 it finished on aggregate to Chelsea. And Porto weren't a million miles off a result by any means. It was, of course, a tough ask in the second leg to overturn that 2-0 deficit. And my feeling after the game was perhaps Barney, they left it a little bit too late in the match to really start pushing Chelsea. And they did look a bit flat in the first hour or so. The thing with the second leg was we had this weird situation with the neutral ground, but the fact that Porto were playing away in inverted commas in the second leg, it just meant that if it, if it had gone to extra time, they would have had such a big advantage in terms of because their away goals would have counted for you know more in the extra time period. And so I think the main thing that confused me about this was one that the, the selection of by not starting Taremi, and I think 
in the week, um, in the win against Tondea, he was rested and, you know, having not played the Champions League game the week before because of his suspension. And all that just implied that he was going to start this game. I don't understand this loving with Morega almost because, don't get me wrong, I thought Morega did what Morega does really well in this game. You, you know, great work effort, um, sort of led a line, you know, can be that outlet sometimes for Longwood, but what Morega hasn't been good at, and that's been evident all season, is scoring goals. I know Taremi was in a bit of a downward bit of form, but you feel much more confident that he Taremi would score than Morega. And so it just didn't quite make sense to me, that decision. And I mean, he got he got a beautiful goal, didn't he, um, when he did get on the pitch. And I, I wanted to highlight Taremi because even though that Ibai's kick was off his shin, you know, but Rooney, think about Rooney's against Man City, you know, it's it still counts, he still meant it. The thing I want to say is that imagine the scenes in Iran when that goal went in because the guy's 28 years old. He was playing in the Iranian league three years ago before he moved to the Qatari league and then he went to Rio Ave and now he's at Porto and he's just scored that bicycle kick in the Champions League. I think it's a fantastic story. He deserves immense credit for getting himself to where he is. I just, I would love to have been in Iran when that went in. It would have been so good. I mean, we were treated to one of the truly great Champions League goals, weren't we? Really? I mean, honestly, one of the best bicycle kicks I remember watching in a long time. People talk about Ronaldo and Bale's bicycle kicks in the Champions League. Obviously, they were slightly more iconic, but just a really incredible, incredible bit of technique from Mediterranean. Yeah, I think for me, the feeling that I had from the game was that I suspected this was how it would go. I thought Sergio Contessao was deliberately setting up the team cautiously for the first part of the game. And let's not forget, they had to score. Of course, they had to score. But equally, they could not afford to concede at any cost. I mean, a goal for Chelsea would have completely killed them off. And they achieved that part of the game plan. They kept a clean sheet. I just wonder whether, you know, maybe it was a deliberate ploy to kind of wait it out. Don't put the pressure on too early, you know, and risk Chelsea then turning on their own attacking game to counter them. And then throw everything at Chelsea in maybe the last 10, 15 minutes, knowing that if they did, Chelsea would most likely be caught out, perhaps in a false sense of security by that point in the game, uh, and not have any time to reply. You know, that said, it never panned out like that. And I have to say, I was touched disappointed that Porto didn't, as I said, push Chelsea a little bit harder throughout the game. But I do also understand the caution. So a very difficult one. If Sergio Contestal was going to pull off another master game plan, it was always going to be difficult. And, you know, this was just one step too far. After the first leg, which they lost... 2-0 and perhaps maybe that scoring was a bit unfair in them I felt um, I heard a great quote that Porto got portoed by Chelsea and I think that sums <laughs> up perfectly you know because in that first leg I would have forgiven them if they'd gone to play that first leg as out as a nil-nil you know because of the away goal situation but the fact that they didn't they attacked they were I think they went down they went in at half time one or down but had an XG of 2.4 or something compared to Chelsea's 0.4 you know it was a it was very much Chelsea catching them on the break and it just, yeah, I mean, they did well without Taremi and Sergio Oliveira in that first leg. Um, but like I just mentioned, the way that game finished and Conchita's comments after the game, he was really happy with the performance, and rightly so. But I just wonder if his feeling towards the way they set up and played out that first leg led to his decisions to start with pretty much the same team again, just Morega up top. Let's get things straight as well. Like, you know, we can be a little... It's, it's immense credit to Porter that we're being critical of them for not going out to try and beat Chelsea. Exactly, and exactly. They've they've had a fantastic season in the Champions League, and it is easy to overlook the, how thin the Porto's squad is, how much of the same eleven start every week, and you compare that to Juventus, you compare that to Chelsea. Like 
it is vastly different and hmm. they had a great season I just wish that they had a little bit more in the in the, in the second leg man. I totally agree Barley and I, I remember saying it before on, a, on an earlier show that Porto fans might not like me saying it but I think it has been a good season whether they win the league or not the success in the Champions League and all the money they earn from that plus the guaranteed Champions League they now have next season uh, with second place I think it's a very very successful season and look Let's not forget what an incredible achievement it's been for them in the Champions League. A great, great results throughout against huge teams. Manchester City, Juventus, good performances against Chelsea. Uh, invaluable benefit to the coefficient rankings, of course. And as much as Sporting and uh, Benfica fans might not agree, great pride for Portugal and Portuguese football for them to get so far in the highest level of European competition. So, yeah, on in the grand scheme of things, I think Porto can be very pleased with the season that they've had. Well, I think we're going to wrap it up there for this week's show. We'll be back next week, of course. Who knows what will happen in the world of football and the European Super League. Whatever happens, me and Barney are going to come back uh, and chat about it. And, of course, all the action in Portugal. We'd like to say thank you very much for listening. If you enjoyed the show, you could leave us a little review on Apple Podcasts. If you want to get in contact, we're on Twitter, at football or an email at longballfootball at gmail.com. But that just leaves me to say thank you very much for listening. Uh, and I'll see you next week. See you next week.